0: This week on Life and Faith.
1: The very idea of reconciliation is a very Christian, a very religious notion. It's about transformation and it's about redemption.
0: If we're doing work right, it's a part of life.
2: We certainly knew that it was going to lead to war.
0: There's an opportunity to reconnect with spirituality through parenthood. I don't think that there's that many true atheists out there, really. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX, I'm Simon Smart, and today we're reaching back into the archives to bring you an episode about non-violent resistance. That feels like a subject worth revisiting. In a world of so much polarisation and violence, potential and actual, this message remains always relevant, challenging, and when articulated well, compelling. We hope you'll agree that this was an episode worth hearing again. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Actually, the passage in the Bible where this saying comes from goes a little further than that. Life for life, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This principle of retaliation, that a person who has injured someone else should be penalized in a similar way to a similar degree, is the basis for many codes of justice around the world. And though it might sound harsh... It was originally meant as a way of containing violence, not letting it escalate into feuds that would go on and on and back and forth. Jesus, though, suggested a radically different approach. From his teachings, we now have sayings like, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. But he wasn't advocating a passive response to a wrong. Rather, it was an active response It just refused to repay like for like.
3: The tradition of non-violence, of civil disobedience, stretches a long way back and turns up in some unexpected places. In fact, the first recorded instance we have of a person protesting an injustice using non-violent methods turns up in a play written by Sophocles in the 5th century BC called Antigone. Here's how it goes. The title character, Antigone, refuses to obey an edict from the king, who is a ruthless authoritarian and who also happens to be her uncle, The edict forbids her, or anyone for that matter, from burying her brother, Polynices,
2: who's been killed in battle. Antigone so believed in the morality of burying her brother that she disobeyed the law um, and buried her brother. And she faced death, but that act of disobedience was the first recorded case where an individual challenged an unjust law. That's Dr. Maria J.
3: Steffen, an expert in civil resistance movements. She's just completed a major study into whether nonviolent resistance actually works. We'll get to that in a bit. And she's a senior fellow at the United States Institute of Peace. From Antigone, let's fast forward to the 19th century, and you have Henry David Thoreau, an American poet and philosopher, who refused to pay taxes in protest against slavery and the US war in Mexico.
2: Thoreau was arrested and he was put into jail, and he later wrote his famous essay on civil disobedience. And the main thesis of the essay on civil disobedience is that it is the moral duty of every citizen to disobey immoral and unjust laws. Then fast
3: forward then a century or so later, Mahatma Gandhi reads Thoreau in India and is fascinated by this idea of refusing to cooperate with an evil system.
2: He took Thoreau's idea of individual civil disobedience and applied it on a mass uh, level so Mahatma Gandhi was the first one to develop an actual methodology of mass civil resistance and non-cooperation, which he used very very effectively to challenge the British colonial regime from about 1916 to 1947. And I would say one of the most an example of this was the 1930 Salt March.
3: Gandhi and a handful of followers embarked on a 387-kilometer trek across Western India picking up fellow Mahatma activists Gandhi along the way. They were protesting the fact that the British had essentially banned the Indians from making their own Mahatma salt.
2: Indians To make their own salt. So Mahatma Gandhi by then had tens of thousands of followers, arrived at Dandy Beach, um, picked up uh, water, which evaporated to make salt. And by doing that, he was engaging in mass defiance against the, the laws of the British colonial regime. Indians saw what he had done and there was shockwaves sent across the subcontinent that this mass civil disobedience was possible and it was powerful. And that one campaign... Then there's the
3: leader of the great civil rights movement of our time, Martin Luther King Jr., who considered himself
2: a student of Gandhi and Thoreau and Jesus. Um, you know, Martin Luther King uh, was able to apply the Christian notion of love and connect it to the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance in a very powerful way. The idea that you can resist evil without violence, first and foremost. The idea that you can resist a system but still love individuals um, and treat them with respect and honor. The idea that evil must be resisted, it should never be normalized. Um, And the idea that you know mass, uh, nonviolent action can be a force for powerful change, um, is a set of principles and a message that I think will endure the, the test of time.
0: These ideas are enduring and extremely powerful. And we'll pick up on the connection between religion and peace building a little later. But first, there's a couple of niggling questions that often come up in discussions around the concept of nonviolence. For example, does it actually work? Or is it just a nice idea? How does it stack up against violent action? A few years ago, these were the questions that Maria Steffen and fellow political scientist Erica Chenoweth were grappling with.
2: We decided to study a basic fundamental question. Which form of resistance, violent or nonviolent, has been more effective historically against the most formidable of opponents? So because we had been hearing often, ah, oh, nonviolence can work in democracies or against benign opponents, but against the tough, brutal dictators, it doesn't stand a chance. Or violence must be more effective than nonviolent action in these in these particular uh, environments. So we fundamentally uh, tested that proposition.
0: This study involved gathering data on 330 campaigns between 1900 and 2006, some violent, some non-violent, and these were campaigns against formidable opponents, like an authoritarian regime or foreign military occupiers.
2: Independence. And we came up with a very surprising finding to many that the nonviolent campaigns had been twice as effective as their violent counterparts in challenging these formidable opponents. So the nonviolent campaign succeeded 53% of the time compared to 26% of the time for the violent campaigns, which was a shocking and counterintuitive finding for many people. It resulted in the-
0: Success in this study meant achieving their objectives, that the authoritarian regime was removed or foreign military occupiers withdrew as a result of the campaign. Um,
2: and, you know, a lot of people were sceptical, dubious, how is, how is it possible that the nonviolent resistance was was more effective? Others were like, well, of course, it's, it's, it's got to be that case. It's got to be that way. So there have been varying reactions. At least this research provided solid evidence that you can do it nonviolently and win. There are a few reasons why this result seemed
3: counterintuitive. For one, it feels unnatural. When a person or a group of people are oppressed and mistreated, it feels like the normal response would be to fight back.
2: I mean, the natural instinct is to respond to violence with violence. Um, You know, when I'm talking with activists from difficult, repressive environments around the world, I completely empathise with them and understand why they want to respond in kind. It's a natural instinct. It's often therapeutic but it's not strategic. And if you want to be victorious and you want to win as a resistor, you have to do what your uh, challenger, your opponent, does not want you to do. And authorities and regimes often want protesters to use violence because it justifies their own violence in return and it delegitimizes the movement. And so non-violent...
3: Then there are people like the philosopher Nietzsche who think non-violence is weak. He describes the idea of turning the other cheek as illogical and pathetic.
2: Illogical and pathetic, maybe, but pretty darn effective too, I would say. The uh, stereotype or the connotation is that nonviolent action means pacifism. But in fact, nonviolent resistance is an active form of struggle that just involves different weapons. But I think what, is, what needs to be understood is where the power of this method of struggle comes from. And the power of nonviolent resistance is grounded in people, and the consent of people. So when large numbers of people refuse to obey, refuse to cooperate with evil systems or institutions that are unjust, This translates into significant social, political, economic pressure being applied against the opponent. So I would say it's anything but passive, it's anything but weak, um, and it's anything but ineffective.
3: Also, the goal of nonviolent resistance in and of itself is counterintuitive because it is about challenging injustice, but it's also about engaging
2: your enemy and trying to get
3: them to effectively switch teams.
2: Your goal is not to kill, harm, or humiliate the opponent. Your goal is to win over the opponent to your side, which is very different, of course, from armed struggle or insurgency. So you recognize the humanity in the other, and you want to bring them on board to fight what is an unjust system.
0: But that isn't to say that nonviolent resistance always works.
2: So, the key ingredient of successful civil resistance is mass and diverse participation. So, for example, we found in the study that the average nonviolent campaign in our data set attracted 11 times the level of participants as the average violent campaign. And the more, the greater the number of people and the greater the diversity of participants, the more likely the campaigns were to succeed. So, when campaigns are not able to attract mass participation, when there's significant disunity, So when there's no unity around goals, leaders, and tactics, that's usually going to be a sign that a movement won't succeed. If if the campaign or movement is unable to maintain nonviolent discipline when faced with violence, that usually um, uh, is a sign that it will not succeed. So nonviolent discipline, the ability to maintain a a nonviolent posture when provoked or when violence is used against you, is one of the, if not the, most important ingredients of successful a nonviolent resistance. And you can bolster nonviolent discipline f- through training, um, through preparation, through anticipation of the violence that's coming and knowing how to respond and what to do and what not to do.
0: So take the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s in the U.S. This was a hugely significant nonviolent campaign. First, they had mass participation.
2: It was a campaign that um, was led by black leadership that involved the churches, that involved white allies, and that involved a significant number of amazing nonviolent campaigns and tactics. So the Montgomery bus boycott was a classic example um, of African Americans refusing to ride the bus and pay the the fees to the driver, which caused significant economic, um, a significant economic effect um, on the the owners of the bus system. Lunch counter sit ins in Nashville. So it was a very um, methodical, strategic movement of movements that brought lots of different people, groups, organizations, sectors of society together and achieved remarkable gains um, and ended the system of apartheid in this country. Um, we're still, we're
0: still and there was also that commitment to nonviolence, even in the face of violent opposition. Take for example the Selma March, where protesters faced off against police wielding water cannons, hoses, and batons. And they kept going.
2: And people often ask, "How did you maintain nonviolent discipline in this moment?" And you know, a lot of that can be explained by yes, the spiritual resources, the commitment to nonviolence, which was articulated by leaders like King and others, and uh, the participants had been trained in how to maintain nonviolent discipline in these uh, difficult situations. So in the basements of churches, there were trainings in how to do civil disobedience, nonviolent direct action, and how not to respond to violence with violence when provoked. And so, you know, these combinations of the spiritual and the practical strategic really came to bear in the, in the Selma March. From all
3: of the data and analysis, there was a picture of human nature and human society that emerged for Dr. Stefan.
2: I think what it tells you is that, you know, humans when faced with the most formidable obstacles, oppression, injustices, are capable of finding courage and taking action to resist and that they can be effective using nonviolent means. And it also suggests that People have different motivations. Some people are very inspired by religious conviction. Um, and that can be a powerful mooring for their activism and for their, um, use of nonviolent action. And that it's possible, again, to resist unjust structures and institutions um, without exhibiting anger, hatred, um, or, you know, non-acceptance of the other. And um, so it's possible to organize. It's possible to use nonviolent means. It's possible to win over opponents, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And it's possible, most importantly, even when it seems impossible um, to be effective using nonviolent resistance.
0: You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX and we've been hearing from Dr. Maria J. Steffen, an expert in nonviolent civil resistance from the U.S. Institute of Peace. I caught up with her and her colleague Susan Haywood while in Washington, D.C., filming for CPX's documentary on how the church is better and worse than you ever imagined. We filmed a segment on Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech just down the road at the Lincoln Memorial and then we headed over to talk to Maria and Susan together. They're good friends and they bounced off each other as we quizzed them about their respective areas of expertise.
1: I don't think that People who are driven by their faith or who are religious are particularly better at peace than anybody else. But I do think they bring particular skills or experiences or techniques to their peace building that might set them apart and make them more effective in particular
0: situations. Susan Haywood is an interfaith activist and a just peace builder. What she's saying here is interesting because in our culture, we're more likely to connect religion with violence rather than peace. And there are reasons for this.
1: Part of what makes faith and religion such a powerful motivator and support for peace is also what makes it a powerful motivator and support for violence and for war. And we can see that throughout the history of any religious tradition. Um, I work a lot with the Buddhist community and there's similar examples um, as other traditions in Buddhist history and Buddhist contemporary life of Buddhism being drawn on to support violence. But Christianity in particular I think has a a long um, and difficult history of Christian ideas and Christian communities um, mobilizing in support of war. Scott Appleby sometimes refers to what's called the ambivalence of the sacred. This idea that religion um, motivates these deep impulses and these deep motivations that can lead people to extraordinary acts. And that sometimes that deep impulse can drive people to violence. But just as much that same impulse can drive people to very selfless and courageous acts of peace.
3: When it comes to peace building, religious faith can offer something unique and potentially transformative.
1: Those who come to the work of peace building with a religious motivation and a religious understanding of peace may be bringing a sense of peace that goes beyond the technical and that goes beyond purely the absence of violence, encompassing the idea of shalom or salaam, that is also about human dignity, that is about justice, that is about creating environments in which humans can flourish or they may be able to bring particular rituals, particular values, particular practices um, to their peace-building work that can can trigger some of the deep reservoirs of, of people's being and that can trigger kinds of personal transformations that can be very powerful and that can then lead to social or institutional transformations.
3: Hayward says that because religious communities have had to deal with conflict and have been working for peace in different contexts for millennia, They have this wealth of resources, this history of developing ways to respond to injustice, of trying and failing
1: and sometimes succeeding. In the Christian tradition, um, many people draw from the rich history of the Christian just war theory. So beginning with Augustine in the third century up to Aquinas, to um, people like de las Casas in South America, who was arguing against the conquistadors, Um, to Martin Luther King and others in the modern era, there has also in the contemporary era been this movement called Just Peace, which has sought particularly by Christian theologians and activists to recognize what kinds of practices can help build up sustainable peace so that situations of injustice can be best addressed nonviolently. so you can have environments in which people's human needs are met so that international organizations are strong enough to be able to resist the pull to war by various countries um, as a means to try to mitigate the war. Of
0: course, there's also of course the, you know, in the Christian tradition, the example of Jesus Christ as a peacemaker is what many peace-building movements and practices are built on.
1: The teaching of Jesus and the practice of Jesus and the ways in which Jesus um, was very consistent in arguing against violence throughout his ministry, and and also the ways in which Jesus recognized issues of political injustice, economic injustice, social marginalization as issues that should compel Christians um, to create an environment that can be one of sustainable peace, one of shalom in which all people live with human dignity. I think it can be a really powerful rhetorical exercise to ask people in situations of violence and to ask Christians in particular to think of the model of Jesus and how Jesus acted, what his ministry um, looked like and what he said as a part of his ministry, and then to apply that to their current situation in order to make the case against violence and to hold them to that moral standard. Now the challenge is that in Christian history, people have often, especially as soon as the um, the Roman Empire converted to Christianity and they had political power, they've always been able to make the case that violence is legitimate in order to achieve a legitimate goal in order to achieve peace sometimes. So here's where I think the arguments of nonviolent resistance can be most powerful, because if you can say back to them, but has violence ever helped us to really achieve the peace that we're seeking, or are there nonviolent ways in which you can address this injustice and try to achieve peace that might be just as effective in reaching that goal, but also allowing us to continue to act as Jesus called us to act, as nonviolent resistors in the process.
0: But it's not always straightforward.
1: There are times in Christian history where people of good faith have determined that an act of violence was necessary because the situation was so egregious. So an example here would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? During the midst of World War II, where in Germany, he, along with other members of the confessing church, organized and designed an initiative to try to assassinate Adolf Hitler, saying that this was a legitimate targeted use of force in order to address an injustice. Ultimately he failed in that attempt. Um, And it's contested by, by Christians on whether at the end of the day that use of violence was legitimate from a Christian perspective on what Jesus would say in response to that. But certainly as a person of morality and a person of faith, you can understand that impulse. Where
3: religion really does some of its best work, according to Hayward, is in the aftermath of a violent conflict. And one of the best examples of this is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a restorative justice tribunal that was set up in 1994 in post-apartheid South Africa. It was a court-like setup that allowed victims to give statements about their experiences of gross human rights violations and also allowed perpetrators of violence to give testimony and request amnesty from prosecution.
1: The very idea of reconciliation is a very Christian, a very religious notion. It's about transformation and it's about redemption, which are very Christian concepts. And moreover, the needs in terms of bringing communities together, of healing individuals and communities who have suffered a great deal and experienced a great deal of loss, are things that spiritual resources, spiritual ideas and processes can lend a lot to. The very notion of a transitional justice and a reconciliation process that is based on ideas of confession um, or of testimony, and of forgiveness, and of reconciliation we're, are based in part on Christian ideas of what's required in the aftermath of, of violence or in the aftermath of conflict or in the aftermath of some sort of a brokenness or wrong. And because both sides of the conflict there, we're primarily Christian and were deeply religious, there was a shared narrative and a shared theological frame that could be used to bring people together and to drive this movement. And so what Desmond Tutu and other religious leaders were able to bring in terms of theological language and framework um, and spiritual rhetoric and spiritual practices, including song, including prayer, in the midst of the truth and reconciliation process was incredibly transformative and powerful and relevant for that context in which both sides of the conflict were Christian.
0: This has been Life and Faith from the Center for Public Christianity with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. The interviews with Maria Stefan and Susan Haywood were featured in our documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. If you haven't already seen it, you can visit the documentary website, betterandworst.film, for more information. If you enjoy Life and Faith, please do leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform, or you can contact us directly on podcast at publicchristianity.org. Next week...
3: You make a couple amazing films if you're a certain producer in Hollywood, and then you realize, oh, I now have the power to get access to forms of intimacy I don't deserve and was never meant for. But now I can. If there is not accountability in that system, which is a form of vulnerability, it will get bent into exploitation.